Hello, hello, and welcome to the season finale. Yes, you heard it correct. We've come to the end of this first season of 1000 Voices. The support has been overwhelming. So, so, so good. And I really appreciate each and every single one of you. When I started 1000 Voices, I started it with a vision, with a dream, essentially to create a media platform in which we can amplify some more positive stories out there because I essentially feel that the stories that are out there right now are just way too negative. So that was what 1000 Voices was and still is, but we're looking into other things that we can do to further amplify the voices of the people that we're speaking to, to further amplify the positive impacts that we're looking to be making. So in between this and the next season, we're going to be exploring a few different things here and there. We're working on some things, having some very interesting conversations as well. And hopefully in the near future, we'll have something to announce to you. And we're going to be back on the 6th of September with the new episode from season two. So subscribe if you haven't subscribed so you can get that notification when that comes out and save that date down so that you don't miss out. New season is going to be amazing. We've already started having some very, very, very good conversations with some people. And now, for our season finale, we have the very lovely Lou Mensa, the founder of Shade Podcast. A very fitting episode to finalise our season with. Lou has had a very interesting background with some ups and some very low downs. And in this interview, we talk about how all of these different experiences have culminated in her becoming the person that she is today and have eventually led her to found the Shade Podcast. And with the Shade podcast, Lou has opened the door and provided a platform for a variety of black creatives from artists and writers and so forth to come and to share their stories and to give us practical advice that we can take away and use in our own creative endeavors and in our own lives. Lou founded the Shade podcast in 2019 and by 2021, she'd already won a British podcast award. A very inspiring story and one that you should definitely not miss out on. So, without further ado, this is 1000 Voices and here we have Lou Mensah. Hello, hello. Hi there, Lou. How are you today? Hi, Tevin. I'm good, thank you. It's a treat to speak to you on a Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah. Lovely to have you here. It's a very sunny Sunday morning as well, so I appreciate you taking your time out to come talk to us today. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, perfect. It's all good. It's all good. So I was really excited to get you on. I love what you do with your podcast and your background in of itself just sounds so, so interesting when I've had a look at your profile. And I'm quite a strong believer that we're a sum total of the experiences that we've gone through in the past. And you're where you are now. You know, I'm where I am now because we've gone through X amount of experiences in the past. Mm -hmm. And looking at your profile, I feel like there's a few key things that I've come across anyway that you've gone through that have really landed you to where you are now. And it'll be great for us to explore some of that further in this conversation today. To start off with, can we just start off like taking it back back to you growing up, growing up as a mixed race child in the 1970s in Britain, just to start off with, could you paint a picture as to what that was like for you? Yeah, definitely. Well, you're absolutely like right in that, you know, our formative years really create who we are and you know it's a good question because it's a question that I ask my guests as well on the show you know I asked them about growing up and what the environment was like but so we have to remember the times were very very different to what to what they are now or you know for people that were perhaps a little bit younger for you know than me so you know the 1970s when we think about it this was two decades after the start of the Windrush migration so first generation parents you know had kind of had settled and that you know the children were starting to mix and to integrate in schools and, and in the community 
it was Thatcher Britain, you know, that was a very crazy time. Uh, you know, there was anti-black comedy on the TV. That was the absolute norm. You know, people like, people like me or my family were being made fun of on the on TV. You know, there wasn't a lot of positive kind of um, reinforcement there in the media. Um, and there was definitely the rise of the National Front movement as well. So I was very aware of those things, you know. Um, and that was all kind of leading up, that created a tension that was all leading up to the Brixton riots of, of, of 81. And even though I grew up in Watford, which was just in the suburbs, you know, my extended family members were very um, active in, you know, anti-racism, uh, politics and protests at the time. And I, you know, remember overhearing conversations about them planning to protest, you know, in Brixton. And I didn't know what that was about. But obviously, when I saw it on the TV, I started to become aware of it. So that those kind of themes of protest and, um, you know, having a marginalised voice, but that you can use it. Well, I was just very aware of that time. I was too young to be consciously aware of the politics, but I was aware of attention. Um, and my appearance, you know, as a, as a mixed race child was regularly commented on, you know, at school and in the streets. I lived with my, you know, very white blonde head, you know, very pale mum, which, you know, frankly compounded matters, you know, within my extended family, but also, you know, within the community as well. So, you know, I was aware that my existence kind of signified something, was a symbol of something, but I didn't understand or wasn't able to process what that was. And, you know, without the guiding kind of hands of parents kind of explaining those things to you, you're kind of left to work them out on your own, you know. Um, so that was the situation um, at the time. But also, you know, I think that's just an element of, of what was going on at the time. You know, there were wonderful, positive things as well. You know, it was a, uh, it was, I lived in Watford, so it was a, like a multi-ethnic community. And there were lots of different people from different backgrounds who were kind of living in these sort of terrace houses in the same streets. So, you know, I would spend a lot of time, you know, the summers were amazing. The doors were always wide open. It was very safe. You would just run in and out of people's houses, you know, help yourself to a drink. All, all the doors were open all the time. And we literally spent, you know, from dawn till dusk playing outside, going on adventures, going through the rivers, you know, we'd spend the whole day out, you know, so all of those things were really, really positive. Um, you know, and I, the local community kind of consisted of, uh, you know, Irish people, Trinidadian, Jamaican, Ghanaian, you know, British, Turkish, all of those. So we all integrated and mixed together. And that was the norm. So that that was also kind of like, um, like a benefit as well. You know, I, I, I was involved in so many other different communities. Um, so that, yeah, that was the environment at the time. And that definitely did, you know, contribute to lots of things that I went on to do later in life. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. And I love that picture you painted, especially when you're talking about how, you know, you're running through the rivers and doors are wide open. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, I couldn't do that now. Yeah, <laughs> you couldn't do that now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I have a daughter now and I remember thinking that things are very different for this generation of kids. But when I chose a place for us to live, even though it wouldn't be my space where I would want to live, 
you know, I live in the suburbs again. I was very conscious that I wanted her to have as much of a life like that as possible. And so she does have that, you know, she does go in and out of people's houses. The street where we live is safe. The community is safe. And and so, yeah, that's a like that's a, that's a really positive way to, to, to grow up in that safety, you know. That's great. And then I suppose at that period of time as well, you're developing a sense of identity because you're talking, you know, there's the Brixton um, riots going on at the time. And it's just a period of time um, back then when there was a lot of, um, what do you even, like, an, like an awakening. And it's not that I was around there and then, but then when you read about, you know, the 80s, especially um, and all of these uprisings and everything that were happening, not just here, but all over the world. Mm. Um, it seems like it was quite like a, a time where there's like a collective rise in that kind of consciousness and you've got your family around you as well who are very actively involved in all of that and you're hearing all of these conversations um and on top of that so i read about how you used to go to the rastafarian meetups and things like mm-hmm. that so i'm guessing all of these things were contributing to you developing your sense of identity would you say that's a fair statement to make yeah that was when that was definitely when I was older. So I'd say in my early twenties, you know, once um, I'd sort of gone through A levels and gone off to live in London, you know, I started to explore things for myself, not just things that were given to me, you know, in my own surroundings. Um, and there was a power in that, you know, I realised that the sort of dialogue that I heard growing up from the media or or from whatever or from, you know, the negative kind of things that were happening about, you know, black or mixed race people at the time, I realised that was just information coming from one source. And actually, I could um, find my own sources of information and, and, and start to educate myself to, to what was going on around me. So... Um, you know, a family member was a Rastafarian and, you know, so I became part of the wider community there. So hanging out at dub sound clashes and going and setting up sound systems and things like that was was just the norm for me through my teens and going into my early 20s. And then I became more actively involved, you know, in the like um, uh, ideas and politics behind, you know, um, how they lived. And so I'd go to um, meetings in London and I would spend time, you know, just listening to what they were saying and 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 how they explored the world and um and I think I was unconsciously you know trying to fulfill a need to understand how you know the content uh, the continent of Africa you know my African heritage how that fitted into the, to my wider identity what my relationship to it was and what that meant and so those meetings were important and contributed um, in part to my longer kind of journey of of self-actualization you know finding out about my identity but you know that was it it was a a relearning and an undoing of any negative bias that I'd internalized regarding um, my African heritage growing up you know if if, if you remember it was like Bob Geldof on the telly talking about poor people in Africa you know that's Mm. that was what I was getting and so when I was at these meetings it was about strength and the motherland and power and all of these amazing things and and how you know you know this was the source of 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 everything and and so it was a real roundabout turn in my um in my understanding and and um, learning journey um but also I, I learned really simple things from those meetings as well that have kind of supported me throughout life. So it wasn't just about identity and politics. It was about, um, you know, Rastafarians really focus on their relationship to nature, to food, to community. You know, Rastas have been eating clean, you know, I tell food, you know, before 
before it was adopted by influences and, and, and you know, Western culture. So I learned all of those things. So that was, you know, in the 80s and 90s, I understood about veganism and the power of eating plants and, you know, all of those things. So those were just natural kind of really positive consequences of being part of that community um, as well. And I also learned about the healing power of music, you know, um, and how we live daily is a spiritual practice. So, you know, I, all of those things have become really important in my life. And I still, you know, <clears throat> use all of those things that I learned um, in my life today. Um, but I also want to make a point that, you know, one's identity is built through many things, um, through through friendships and through what we see on the TV and and how we grow up. So it's not just one thing. So that was just sort of one element um, of identity building um, from for me. But, you know, there were so many others as well. So with you, with your identity building, so then you could say that was one element and also the, the environment you grew up in, your family members. Were there any other key facets to your identity building, especially in your early years that you could point to? Yeah, well, things that were just about, um, you know, joy and my body you know I was like a really serious dancer so like that was a really important part to me so I I really focus on dance lessons um I did every dance lesson there was like believe it or not like I adored ballroom dancing like and then I went on to do ballet and contemporary dance so that really kind of what that does is that kind of l teaches you to sort of how does to, to connect in your body in the way that kind of gives you strength and power so when you're moving around the world like you're moving throughout your community or your everyday life it's a very interesting thing that I didn't realize was, that was happening at the time but through dance and through having that power of expression in my body that that really supported me outside the studio the dance studio um, as well because that just kind of gave me a confidence um, so that was a really important part of my identity building um, and also like just friends and growing up with such a mix of cultures you know I realized that all of my friends really were from immigrant families but I sought those out you know because the majority of the people that lived in my area you know were white British and I would be considered English um, but I kind of realized as I was growing up that none of my friends really were so I just always sought out friends from different communities and that was a massive influence um, on me so one day I would be having Irish food with my Irish neighbours and then I'd be having Turkish food and then you know um, I'd always go to my Jamaican extended family friends on a Sunday and I knew there that's where I was going to get my rice and peas and my brown stewed chicken and I lived for that <laughs> you know, and all of that. So all of those different kind of cultures really fed me and kind of really enabled me to really like enjoy and explore the notion of what difference is. And then I realised there was no such thing because we were all different and we were all kind of together. So, so yeah, that was really important to me. Great, that's amazing. Now I want to move on a little bit to talking about your early career. So you've got into uh, fashion, you got into PR. Alongside that, you you were 
struggling or battling um, a chronic illness at the same time throughout your 20s and throughout your 30s. In that, in the midst of that time, I'm guessing there's probably like a bit of a crossover as well of the other things you're involved in, like the Rastafarian um, meetings, etc. But what I'm wondering is that during that period of time, at your lowest point, because I'm assuming it must have been very, very difficult, at your lowest point, what kept you going? Yeah, well, that's um, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, even though I started to become ill in my 20s, I'm 50 now and I'm still processing actually that time and what kept me going but it was really really difficult um so yeah I worked in PR and I worked hard I partied hard you know I was doing working eight to ten hours a day then I was going straight to a dance class you know uh straight after work I was partying all weekend you know it was the 90s I was at raves constantly all night you know no sleep get up again and then I got a post-viral illness which is similar to long covid but back in the 90s they had no research or information on that so nobody knew what was wrong with me and that was a really difficult time. So I went from being a really seriously physically active and busy person. Um, and I worked with Anita Roddick at the, the body shop then for her charitable uh, foundation. So that was also, um, I worked in activism at the time. But I went from being super active and super busy to literally not being able to get out of bed to, to go and use the bathroom. So that was very difficult. So in your 20s, when all your friends are still out and about and partying and working and and kind of accelerating their career um i had to really take stock and concentrate on getting better and actually your like your question about what kept me going um when i'm looking back i realize it was it was creativity you know i was i was given a camera at the start of my illness um by my boyfriend at the time who was a photographer and and you know i realized that when i had been at work before that the only part of the job that I really enjoyed was being on the photo shoots and so when he gave me a camera he was just like look if you're well enough to go out in the street today or walk to the end of the road you know you're a good photographer just take a picture of somebody in the street or the man at the news agents or whatever and so I did and then that became kind of like a bit addictive And I realise it's because I got the conversation, I got the sense of connection, you know, and I got the creative kind of like um, the buzz from doing it. Like it's a real high, you get a real buzz from doing it, you feel really good afterwards. And so that is what kept me going um, more than anything. And the creativity kind of activated a rich internal world for me. So my physical body wasn't able to do what it did or what I wanted it to do. but my internal world, like my creativity, you know, my thoughts and and everything were able to kind of create a new world for me, you know, within the creativity. Um, and also that meant I, I, you know, I met lots of new friends. I started to work with um, models and agents. And so it created a kind of new network and community for me when I kind of had lost it through being ill previously. That's great. And it's like, in a sense, it's like you've discovered something that you love so much, something that you're so passionate about that has helped you to get through, which is probably going to be one of the toughest periods in your entire life. And it's very interesting as well, because when you 
talk about you've got the the photography side of things and then you've always been into dance yeah you spoke about when um you learn about the healing power of music these are all all these different creative endeavors and also just your family your family background and um activism and the riots and etc all that was all of that happening back then and throughout your life and it's like all of these threads are woven together now where now um it's taking you to where you are now and you founded the shade podcast where you're interviewing black creatives essentially so like all of these threads have like woven together and led you to where you are now which is very interesting yeah. so just on your podcast now can you talk about what the motivation was behind starting it and what and what it is actually for people who don't know where it is yeah I wanted to start a podcast because I wanted to create a space um, to explore and elevate the work of marginalized artists you know predominantly racially marginalized artists so black artists you know because I was one in the 90s you know I got quite far in my career very quickly when I was taking photographs you know I I might have been in bed one minute and then I'd do a shoot for an hour the next day and then I'd have to go to bed for a week but what happened was is that um because my career kind of accelerated quite quickly I realized that I didn't have like a community to support me I hadn't gone to art college I didn't I didn't have a group of artist friends I didn't know what I was doing apart from from you know my own little world that I was creating and so there was two reasons I started Shade the first reason was is that um, you know, for all of those years that I was ill and, ab- and able to do shoots um, from time to time, I really relied on um, getting my inspiration and sense of community um, from listening to interviews on the radio. Like I would spend days and days in bed because I wasn't able to to get up, but I would seek out all the art shows, all the interviews with the artists and any type of artist. So that was authors, dancers, musicians. And that really fed me, you know, just hearing stories from like-minded people that kind of created a little community to me in my head I felt like oh I'm one of them okay so I want to hear about their life because I don't know about this artist's life um even though I was living it you know um and so and and then I also just spent a lot of time um uh reading magazine articles and interviews with other photographers and so I realized that they're actually weren't any conversations um, about the kind of the aspect of the arts that I was interested in, which was, um, uh, you know, work from um, black artists, you know, black women artists, p- perhaps older artists, you know, all, all of these things. Those conversations were not being had um, on a consistent basis within the media that in a way that was enriching to me so all the main uh, art podcasts are great but you know they might have a black artist on or or talk about issues that affect us um, you know once in a blue moon so there wasn't anything on a consistent basis so I wanted to make a podcast that was accessible to people that perhaps don't have access to the art world you know they can't go to galleries for whatever reason um, but they can just discover this art this podcast and and find like a safe interesting um like intimate um exploratory space to discuss um the work of um black artists so i wanted to create what perhaps i really wanted when i started um off um, as an artist in the 90s um 
And also I wanted to open up the barriers as well because there's invisible and visible barriers to people accessing the art world, you know, and enjoying art. Some people are too scared to go to art galleries for whatever reason, they think it's not for them. And I was just like, this is going to be a really welcoming space where we talk about art in a way um, that is accessible, but also art that has a purpose. So it has a, a socially conscious purpose, you know, whether that's um, activism or, you know, anti-racism uh, activism, whatever element, but it has um, like a, a, a purpose beyond just being beautiful um, art as well. That's great. And since you started the podcast, what would you say has been maybe one or some of your biggest learnings about yourself, about society, and particularly from from the perspective as a um, black British um, woman? Oh, well, what have I learned? So many, so many things. Um, I think just stick to doing what you um, stick to doing what you believe in you know even if you're not sure where you you're going with it um also you know you've got to get tenacious like I've really learned how to reach out to people how to build a community um that's been really interesting but there's there's been a lot of like interesting things that happened during the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 um I really saw um through the podcast and through people that were approaching me or wanted to work with me that actually there's a real kind of um difference between people who are really invested in um in the work that we're doing or in the art that we're creating or in you know what we're trying to say about our experiences and then there are some people who you know it's suitable for them to kind of tag on to what we're doing because it benefits them so when you get like to a certain success um in any area um i'm sure lots of your guests experience this you'll have a lot of people that will, will want to join in and, and be part of it for some reason and it's quite disheartening when you feel that perhaps the integrity is not there with some of the people who want to work with you but also what you do is you get a massive the massive positive as well of really making some amazing friends and and community members who really want to support you and you want to support them in continuing the work so it's a double-edged sword so I've learned I've just learned so many things but in terms of actual podcasting as well you know it takes longer than you think it's harder than you think um but it's wonderful and the opportunities that you get um like from meeting and, and talking to such a variety of people is so enriching you know I wouldn't change it for the world for sure. Uh, what opportunities would you say that podcasting has brought to you? Well, it's brought, it's brought to me other commissioned work. So on the basis of the podcast, you know, um, other um, people might find me and ask me to do things. So I've been asked to create podcasts um, for brands, um, for art galleries. Um, I've got, you know, work teaching podcasting to art students um but also what it's it's done again it's this sense of community um i've just really made a a bunch of like amazing friends as well that i would not have had access to had i not created this platform you know so podcast is public facing you know it's it's out there for the public um so you know people sort of know that you exist exist by by virtue of the fact that you're doing something that's public um uh, so yeah and i've had book publishers approach me and and um to create like a book on the back of the podcast as well um and an interesting point about that is is that these opportunities come your way but you know i'm 
I've learned so much through doing this podcast that saying no is as important as saying yes. So I would definitely say that I've said no to more opportunities um, and talks and podcasts and, you know, book publishers, ideas and panel talks and all of these things. I've definitely said no more than I've said yes, because I just think it's really, really important to do things the way that you're comfortable with and that are right for you, you know. And so... um, but it's been a great learning curve and, and just um, having that um, attention from people that you normally wouldn't meet has been amazing. That's great. And to hear that you say no more than you say yes and that you're here now. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you for coming on. What is, it, what is it about some of these opportunities that makes you say no? I really like to take a step back and look at what the intention is of the person that is approaching me and what would my intention be by doing it and I ask that every you know every time and you know and my background is in PR you know that's the job that I did for a really big company before I became became unwell so I'm very aware of the exchanges that happen um, in these things and also I think you can be too public you know I think you can have too much information out there on you I think there can be too much content and I think it's a very I think it could become very noisy And so I think saying yes to everything, saying sort of the same things on a bunch of different podcasts or, you know, in different articles, it's not like enriching to me. And I don't think it's enriching to the people that are listening to the content. So I'm like, you know, is this am I going to really offer something here that's that's interesting to the world by taking this opportunity? And am I is it interesting to me um, and is it going to take time away from me doing something else that I really need to work on that's more of a long-term project um, so I kind of think being a bit elusive and taking your time um, with things and saying no to things is really important so you can actually focus on what what you want to do all right great and with your podcast so you founded it in 2019 and mm. in just a couple of years two years later you won an award for it so what do you think, what was it about what you were doing that within those two short years, you was able to get that kind of recognition and to, you know, go about even being considered winning these kind of awards? Do you know, I don't actually know. I we'll have to ask the judges. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to ask the judges. I don't know. Um, I, I, I think, again, that it was clear that there weren't any other podcasts coming um, out of the UK that had a focus on um, black Um, artists but also you know my work extends beyond that I talk to educators as well and curators and art critics and and people who kind of like are really talking about really big complex ideas but talk about them in a really accessible way so everybody can be involved so I think it's not just talking about really beautiful art which is really important it's also talking about um, the issues surrounding that art you know and um, you know people that work in the creative industries are really interested in that but also like people outside who just like going to art galleries are also interested in that or people who just have a social conscience you know um are interested in that but when the like when i've um had press written about the podcast or when there's been reviews or whenever i've like been nominated for an award or something um they just say you know it's the 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 complex com- conversations but the intimacy that um 
that is created in those conversations and that also perhaps shade highlights kind of issues um, that need to be thought about. Um, and so I don't know if that's why. But also I think maybe being an older person really contributes to being able mm -hmm. to create something that perhaps is different because I'm never going to create anything based on a trend or what is like... Um, you know the thing of the moment like it's just not of interest to me so I think it kind of comes through when you're talking about something that you've not only lived but you care deeply about so you know I've been involved in the arts for 30 years now in in some capacity and I think that kind of sets shade apart from perhaps other art podcasts um who are perhaps hosted by celebrities or famous people from the tv who perhaps haven't been an artist before yeah, I hope so. I don't know. We have to just ask people who listen to the show what makes it, why people listen to it. I don't know, or why I've won awards for it. But um, I think that's what it might be. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's good. <laughs> it's great. It's a, <laughs> it's a great show, actually. I really enjoyed the interviews. I Thank listened you. to the, the latest one with Echo. And, oh, um, Echo, that, yeah. That one was really cool. Yeah, isn't he, he's in here beautiful, like, speaker. He's just, like, so interesting. Mm. It was amazing. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. And I listened to that, I think, yesterday or something. came out quite recently, wasn't it? Um, yeah. But I listened to it. Really, and I listened, I liked the Johnny Pitts one, Afropean. So sick. Yeah. That one was really good. That's probably my favourite one. But yeah, oh, it's a thank great, you so much. Yeah, it's definitely a great podcast. I can see, I think the quality of it in of itself is definitely very good. The conversations are so good. Like, really cool, really authentic conversations. Um, so I think in, like that in of itself, of course, helps as well. Um, but also on top of it, it's the... Like, because right, the quality is good, but then there's loads of good quality things out there. But with Shade in of itself, it seems that you're reaching, you know, a, a decent sized audience as well. Yeah, thank you. I think it's also important if you're an independent podcaster like you are, right? So we didn't get into this to make money. So a lot of the podcasts that are out there are part of massive, big money-making machines. It's like stick a celebrity on it, give them a script, <laughs> find them a guest and get them to talk because that makes money because you can get big sponsors and big advertisers. And I think that's the difference between independent podcasts like yours and, and mine, where it's coming from a genuine place of interest and um, and kind of knowledge within the subject that you're talking about. So I think that's what kind of sets us independence apart from other shows as well. So do you feel then having that kind of, that very genuine interest, very genuine passion, has been the key catalyst towards Shade growing the way it's grown? Or have there been some other things that along the way that you've done that have helped it to grow as well? I have to say, um, I think it's that, but I think it's also, you know, people have to know about your podcast. You can be an interesting person with an interesting mm -hmm. subject and you've got two people who are also interested listening to it. So it's like with everything, you know, if you've got a piece of work that's public, you've got to make sure that people know about it. So how do you do that? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, I was lucky to have like a short career in PR before I became unwell. So part of that job was talking to press every single day, meeting press, having lunch with press, talking to press about products, about, you know, trying to get them interested in something um, that you're representing for your client. And so I was very comfortable with that. You know, the first thing I had to do when I worked in fashion PR, you know, I was like 19 and I remember my boss just said to me, here's some money, go and take this person out from Vogue for lunch and talk to them about this collection. And I was literally like, 
what the fuck? I'm just a girl from Watford. I can't <laughs> go and sit in this fancy place and talk to some posh Vogue girl about this designer collection and make it interesting. I can't do that. But he threw me into the deep water. I had to do it. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to talk about Raven. I could tell she was a bit of a party girl. So I didn't talk I didn't talk about the collection at all. I was just myself. And I was just like, oh, where did you go out at the weekend? And this, And we spent the whole lunch talking about that. And then when I real and then I realised, well, if you're just yourself and you just have a human connection with someone, that's going to go far. Really, who is that interested in talking about handbags or, or or jackets? Like it's boring, you know. Even if they work in fashion, it's still boring. And so I realised that if you have those genuine connections with people, um, actually they're interested in hearing about your work. So I was really comfortable when it got to promoting the podcast in emailing journalists. So I was just like, you know, and all of the emails would be ignored. You know, you send 100 emails, one journalist might respond. Well, OK, they responded for a reason. So let's try and talk to them or talk to them about the work and see where that goes. So I think that being comfortable talking to press has really has really helped me. Um, and also, like like I say, is um, I also spend quite a lot of time thinking about who do I want to work with? You know, what company do I want to work with? What art institution do I want to work with and why? And I would rather do nothing. You know, I would rather not put any podcasts out for three or four months, which I have chosen to do at a point. And I'm just going to focus on trying to connect with these institutions on the, or with these brands or with these people to create something special because that's what I care about. So I think it's a bit about being very targeted in how you use your, your time as well. Um, and I only work on this a couple of hours a week. You know, this is not my full-time job. You know, I don't get any money from this. This is like a couple of years on and I, I don't earn a living from this. You know, um, I home educate my daughter full time. So I teach her all day um, and I have to fit in a bit of podcast work around that. So when you've only got a couple of hours here and there to work on things, you get very targeted and very specific about how you're going to spend your time. Yeah, definitely. So would you say that you found your purpose? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I th I think I think um I found my purpose in the fact that I'm connecting uh with like-minded people. Um that I'm comfortable in my voice, that I found my voice now and I'm very happy in expressing it, which I wouldn't have been when I was younger. Um and so I found my purpose um in that way and and I found my purpose in the way that I'm enriched by what I do. You know, I love it. I love it every time I speak to a new art gallery or um, an artist or someone and we're cooking something up together. It makes me really, really excited. And so I think that's the way that you check in with yourself to see if you found your purpose. Like that feels like such a big statement, like a godly statement. Have you found your purpose? I don't know if it's as massive as that. I think we're always like searching for enrichment but like, do I really enjoy it and get excited by it? Um, yeah, I do. Yeah. Cool. That's great. What would you actually you know with your season four of your podcast, uh, Black Images yeah. Matter, which is yeah. a really cool concept, actually, um, and very t timely with everything that's happening around the world and everything. Really cool. Um, would you say with regards to black imagery in the UK, mm. do you feel like uh, what first? What do you think of it? Is it good, bad, and do you feel like there's been any sort of shift from back in maybe the 70s, 80s up until now, whether positive or negative? 
I think there's just more of, of, of an awareness um, with regards to the work of black artists. You know, the work of black artists has always been marginalised. It hasn't been, um, it hasn't had entry into um, the big institutions or the big art spaces um, without it being categorised as being black art. You know, we have to remember that it's important to note that, you know, um, black art and black artists are not a monolith monolith you know we are not we are not the same um and some artists refuse quite rightly to identify as black artists as well and i think that's a really important um thing to think about and a really important process but um art is like any sort of social phenomena you know it goes through stages um you know the first stage is that you know artists need to be heard they want to share their experiences because their voices have been suppressed for so long you'll find that the themes that are being um explored in their art are about this is our life this is our struggle we want to be heard and you'll find any marginalized group and that is the stage that they go to when they first find that they have a voice right so you found that in rap and in hip-hop you know the black experience in the 70s and 80s was, was about the struggle and how difficult it was it's because you know those groups were not being heard so that was the first stage that kind of artists went through um, when they were being first heard and then it's about you know developing into sharing um our our experiences more widely and perhaps losing the need to be so expressive about what our struggles are and we want to be more uh, you know art goes through a period of um being more integrated where perhaps we will be integrated um at shows and at art galleries and in magazines and the focus of us being there is not the fact that we're black it's the fact that we've got commendable work and, you know, we won't be listed as this black artist, you know. It will be, well, this is this work by this photographer. And that's the stage that we have kind of been going through recently and that's kind of the stage that's been happening. And then we move into, like, a third stage as well, which is about exploring our, our truths and our futures, like, which is separate and apart from the white gaze, you know, from, from the gaze of the white mainstream media or culture. It's about expressing ourselves, like, on our own terms, in our own way, you know, and the pinnacle of, of, of where we are going now, and I think the stage that we're entering is, is that we remove any need to kind of assert ourselves as black artists in any way, you know, artists are artists we are artists this is our life this is our experience um and and i just think that's really interesting um and i remember hearing and um, there's an actor called riz ahmed i don't know if you've come across his work but he's amazing um and i remember him talking about something similar with acting you know when he was first hired when he when he first started being an actor he was only only asked to be uh like a cab driver or um like a, a suicide bomber right and so he took those roles because he was like well that's a stereotype so I'm a Pakistani man actor so I can only be in those roles because that is the stage where the media and the culture was at the time and then he said you know he goes through stages where he was like oh you know he can be a bit rough around the edges they always put him in a council estate or you know um 
sort of put him in a kind of box as to what his identity is but he will move through that a little bit and he says like his idea of nirvana is when he's just hired to be like an average joe in a family where the race of the character is completely irrelevant and it's not mentioned it's his character and it's his inner world um and it's and it's his um personality and that's what happens in art as well so we're definitely moving in into the kind of that kind of area when it comes to to art from black artists that's great all right so what's next for yourself and for shade um when we're working on season five i say we because this is truly an independent podcast i work completely on my own on this um but i'm lucky enough to have an amazing sound designer work with me next season so i'm working with um someone called axel cacoutier who is um one of the most amazing sound designers and um creative kind of individuals within podcasting and we are working on something really really special um it's completely different from what we've done before with shade um it's not an interview um based podcast it's going to be something very different so um that would be launching in september um and it's a whole new concept um for shade so i can't wait wait to share that Great, I'm quite, quite, I'm looking forward to that actually. Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking, I'll look out for that for sure. All right, and finally, before we wrap up, yeah, if you could go back and start all over again, what would you do differently? Oh, do you know I wouldn't do anything differently? Would I do anything differently? No, I wouldn't. I'm sorry, I wouldn't do anything differently. Boring answer, but true. No, no, it's, it's okay. You know what? Everything you go through makes you who you are now, anyway. So yeah. All right, cool. That's great. That's that. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast, Lou. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Tevin. It's been lovely talking to you. Lovely. And yeah, before you wrap up, have you got anything that you want to say just to round up? And also, where can people keep up to date with Shade if they want to keep up to date with it as well? I would just say, keep on doing what you're doing. I can't I can't wait to hear more of your interviews. Are you going to be interviewing a thousand people? I was just interested yeah, in that. Is yeah, that yeah, your... A thousand oh, people. my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you worked out how many years that might take? <laughs> yeah, I've done the maths. If I'm doing once a week, it'll take around, up around 10 years. Really? But hopefully, you know, in the future, because we'll, right now I'm not doing it full time. Hopefully in the future we can put more time into it and release more than once a week and speed yeah. speed it up a little bit. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> I yeah. think you're creating and you might not realise it now, but you have to look at this in the long term. You're just creating the most amazing, amazing archive of black voices and people will be able to look back. And because there'd be a 10 year period, it would be so amazing to listen to all those voices over the years. So I just want to say the last thing I want to say is just like what an amazing thing you're doing. And I just respect your dedication to it. So, yeah. Ah, thank you so much. Really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank oh, you. and where can people find me? Oh, I hang out on Instagram mostly so um you can find me at shade underscore podcast on um instagram yeah come and have a chat yeah perfect check it out it's a lovely feed it looks really cool and yeah so that's that people thank you for tuning in thank you once again for coming to the podcast lou it was amazing talking to you today and that's that for now so that was 1000 voices this was lou mensa of shade podcast and for now we're out bye Okay, and that's the interview done. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. 
The new season will be back on the 6th of September. So please make sure you subscribe if you haven't subscribed on whichever platform you're listening to this on right now so that you don't miss out when it comes out. If you've enjoyed this first season, please do leave us a review if you haven't already on whichever your preferred platform is. It really, really does help us in trying to amplify the voices of the people that we speak to and to further amplify the positive impact that we're looking to be making with 1000 Voices. Follow us on our social media pages at 1000 Voices UK. We're most active on Instagram, but you can find us on most major social media platforms, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, etc, etc. Follow us. We'll be making sure we keep you updated on those platforms there. And we'll be releasing some bonus episodes here and there as well, just so we've got some content to keep things ticking until season two comes out. But but that's that for now. Go and enjoy the rest of your summer. We will be back on the 6th of September. And until then, people, we're out.